Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Like Becky was saying, small groups is a great way to do that. And so we'd encourage you to check that out. Also love to invite you into the final week of a short little sermon series we've been in as we've begun our year together called Money Matters. And what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks is just taking a look at what the Bible has to say about money and why our relationship with money seems to matter so much to God. And I mention this every week, but just, just on the front end, for those of you who are new or visiting, uh, we're not doing our series on money because we're trying to get some from you. Uh, like the church budget is healthy and fine. We're not about to start a giving, like a new, like a new building campaign. We just renewed the lease on this place. Like we're not trying to pump you for money in some way, shape, or form, right? We're also not trying to do some kind of uh, church-wide financial intervention where we're like helping a bunch of people out with some really uh, serious financial issues they're having. I'm sure in a room this size, there are people all across the board of financial health. And if there's ways that we can serve or help you, we would love to do that. But your current financial status of your health is not why we're doing the series. Instead, we've seen the reason why we're spending all these, these couple of weeks talking about money is because even though we don't really like talking about it that much, God's word talks about money all the time. And the sheer volume of biblical content on money should clue us in to the fact that it's an area of our lives that God really cares a lot about. And so therefore, it's something we should absolutely spend time and attention carefully considering. And we began our series by just trying to answer the question, why does money matter to God? And we saw that the, the reason isn't that God hates it or that he's afraid of it or that he's anti it, but that God really loves you. And he wants you to love him. And he understands better than any of us the immense power that money has to either deepen our love for him or divert that love away from him. We saw in Jesus' words in Matthew 6 when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He shows us that what you do with your money, how you spend it, how you save it, how you give it, how you use it, it not, just, it not only <laughs> reveals your heart and what you love and serve, it impacts your heart and what you love and serve. In other words, Jesus is helping us to see that your heart it follows your money. And so if we want to be a people who both enjoy and who emanate God's love, then we're going to need to understand the power that money has and how to harness that power so it becomes a tool that deepens our love for the Lord rather than a master that diverts it away from him. And we saw week two, how harnessing the power of money, it begins with this fundamental uh, mindset shift Instead of living with the perspective of selfish owners who think what's mine is mine, I'm going to use it however I want, God's word calls us instead to think and act with the perspective of a generous steward, one who understands and who thinks what's mine is actually God's. I'm going to use it however he wants. And we've seen that a steward understands that all they have is really God's. Even the skills and abilities, the talents they have to earn wealth and generate it, all of that's his. And he's entrusted us with those resources for a season and a time. And he's given the task to us to manage those resources according to his vision and his priorities. We took a look at Paul's words to the Corinthians and we saw how uh, generosity towards God and towards God's kingdom purposes and the good of others, that's the top priority for a steward of God's resources. 
But it's not the only thing God tells us to do with his resources. We looked last week at four biblical principles for being a wise steward of the way that we spend our money. And we saw how, as boring and unspiritual as it sounds, that wise stewardship begins with having a plan and having a budget. One that's not based on just wants and needs, but instead that's rooted in our identity and the priorities that come from identity as disciples of his who's, who long to worship Jesus, to be changed by him, and to help others to do the same. And how that helps us to spend money with an eternal perspective, understanding that this life's not all there is, that people matter more than things, and that contentment, not abundance, is the key to joy. And that will lead us as well, we saw last week, to avoid debt as much as possible so that we'll be free to direct God's resources however he calls and directs us rather than having those things wrapped up in the pursuit of our own pleasures. But there's one last aspect of our stewardship that we need to talk about as we wrap up our time together talking about money this morning. And that has to do with the way that we save and invest it. Now, some of us are spenders by nature. Some of you are savers. You savers are like, finally, like we finally got to the good part of this sermon series, right? We got to talk about saving money. It's going to be so great, right? Um, But as we take a look at what the Bible has to say about this aspect of our relationship with money, what we're going to see is that while the Bible really encourages us to save and to invest wisely for the future, it also warns us repeatedly about doing so for the wrong reasons. What I want to show you this morning as we wrap up our time together in this series on money is that instead of saving or investing with the mindset of self-reliant owners... God's word calls us to do so from the perspective of a dependent steward. One who not only recognizes that all we have is from God, but, one who, but stewards who believe that he is our provider and our protector and our greatest joy. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into our study in, in God's word together and see how his word teaches us to be dependent stewards. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for you and for our time together in your word. And as we wrap up our series together talking about what your word has to say about money, we come again to you just like needing you to give us soft hearts, God, to cause us to be a people who aren't self-reliant but who are dependent and who are characterized by using and viewing money in ways that show that you, Jesus, are our greatest provider and protector and source of joy. And so uh, I don't have any ability to make any of that happen, uh, but you do. And so by your spirit, would you cause us to see you as our great hope, the one that is worthy of our trust, and to live and to relate to money in light of you being our our king. And so we need you for that. Pray that for our joy and for your glory, you'd help us to do it this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, uh, just three short and sweet points this morning. We're going to see the wisdom of saving and investing for the future, the danger of doing it for the wrong reasons, and how the gospel empowers us to live as dependent stewards. So that's our our three points this morning. Like I mentioned, the, the Bible does encourage stewards of God's resources to save or invest for the future. Sometimes people think like, well, if we really just trusted God, then we wouldn't really be saving. That's dumb, and that's not what the Bible has to teach. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20 says it this way, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Right? In other words, wise stewards, they don't just use everything they have. They don't burn through it. They don't spend it. They don't use all of it. They store some of it up for later. Right? Fools, on the other hand, they consume all they have without thinking about it, without anything other than their current hunger, their current needs or wants right at the forefront of their desires. 
Genesis 41, we read about how Joseph was put in charge of preparing the whole country of Egypt for a famine by storing up grain and other resources in years of plenty so that they would have resources to live on in the the lean years. And God uses Joseph's prudent stewardship of those resources not only to save the whole Egyptian nation, but to save the very people of God, his, his family. Proverbs 31 praises the godly wife for investing in property and multiplying her investment. In verse 16, says that she considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 2 right, not only affirms the wisdom of financial investing, it gives us the practical advice of diversifying those investments. Solomon says it this way, invest in seven ventures, yes in eight, for you don't know what disaster may come upon the land. And so saving and investing for the future is clearly something that the Bible thinks is prudent and wise and good. But the Bible also gives us a few reasons, not just why it's a good idea, but why it's really important and necessary. And this is not the all-encompassing list, but four, four, re- four reasons the Bible gives us for the wisdom of saving and investing. The first one is this, there is more than one financial season of life. Right, in Proverbs chapter 6, the writer of Proverbs, he praises the ant right, and encourages us to see the ant as this, this respectable, admirable uh, creature to be imitated because what happens, he says, is during seasons when food is plentiful, they work hard and they store up resources for seasons that they know are coming when food will not be plentiful, when resources won't be coming in. And it, it teaches us this principle that godly stewards, like, you, you, they, just, they don't eat just while the eating's good. They look forward to future seasons of life and anticipate their needs and save accordingly. These seasons of life, they can be both short-term and long-term, right? On the short-term side, they realize that some seasons of life are just pretty financially lucrative, right? Maybe right now you're single and uh, you are fine with living on the cheap and a small one-bedroom apartment is more than you need. And ramen and PBJ, they taste great, right? And that's fine with you, right? And so it's easy to have a lot extra and to save when you have a career at that point. Others of you are in that category, you're, you're a dink, right? Double income, no kids, right? And you're in that sweet spot where you got two incomes, not, you got a lot of income, not a lot of outflow in that stage of life. And so uh, whether, you're, uh, whether you have amazing paying jobs or not, you probably have a fair amount of financial freedom and flexibility, right? Other seasons of life just aren't that way. Maybe your company is downsizing and you lose your job, or you have the joy and also financial burden of having and raising children, right? See, living on less than you make and saving in times of abundance will enable you, uh, give you the flexibility and options you might not otherwise have later on. Like allowing a mom to stay home with her kids when they're young, if that's how she feels God leading her to direct her time and attention and focus. Or waiting until the right job comes along instead of being forced to take the first thing that you're offered just because you need to put food on the table. Whether it's short-term or long-term, you're not going to be able, the reality is that whatever career you have, you're not going to be able to do that forever. Right? Tragic accidents and illness aside, the vast majority of us are going to spend at least some portion of our lives without a steady income stream. And so you're going to need to set aside some of your income now for that inevitable season of life later on. Right? But the financial realities of the inevitable seasons of life, right? they're not the only reasons we're encouraged to save and invest for the future. The second the Bible gives us is that the reality that emergencies happen. Stuff comes up. Some seasons of life you can predict, many you just can't. 
Global pandemics arise out of nowhere. Economies go into recession. Business investments don't pan out. Employers downsize their workforces. Vehicles get into accidents. Fridges and furnaces break at the worst time. So do adult ankles when you're going down slides chasing your kids, as I may or may not have experienced knowing, right? The point is, is that emergencies are unpredictable, and when they happen, they're inevitable, and they usually aren't cheap. And if you don't have anything set aside, then emergencies become catastrophes. Right? Because you end up just adding the burden of high-interest credit card debt or personal loans. You just burden, it's like it just piles on top. Right? According to a, a bank rate survey from just this last year in 2023, 57% of Americans don't have enough in savings to cover even $1,000 of an emergency. And so although there's no specific uh, thou shalt have an emergency account verse, right? Passages like James chapter 4 which 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 say this, they say, "Now listen, you who you who say today or tomorrow will go to this city or that, spend a year there or here, carry on business and make money, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. For what's your life? You are a mist that appears and for a little while vanishes." Right, passages like that, they help us to see that like, not, not planning for any kind of emergencies or unexpected things, that's not just foolish, that's arrogant. Because you, the only one who knows and controls the future is God, not you. Right, combine that with the repeated emphasis we've seen already on the prudence of planning ahead for future needs and expenses and the, uh, the, the priority of avoiding debt as much as possible. Right, and you realize that saving money and having an emergency fund Right, like that's not just like Dave Ramsey baby step number one to financial freedom. Like that's godly stewardship 101. All right, so if you don't have an emergency account, start there. That's a great place to start saving. The reality is, though, is that if we don't save for expected future seasons of life or unexpected emergencies, that's the third thing. It often leads us to an unhealthy dependence on others. See, well, the Bible repeatedly praises the dependence that we have on God for everything. Being a financial drain on the body of Christ is repeatedly throughout the scriptures presented as a problem. And if you remember just back a few months ago, we were taking a look at First and Second Thessalonians. And if you remember, one of the issues that Paul has to address in that letter is that there was a small group of people who were part of that church who, for whatever reason, had just decided that they were basically just done working. And it's not that they had saved ahead and were, had the financial freedom to do that, they just were kind of mooching off the generosity of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he writes it to this, them this way. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you won't be dependent on anyone. You know, right? He goes on in 2 Thessalonians to tell the church not to associate it with these lazy moochers who are just kind of sucking resources down. And just to be clear, what I'm not saying is that there aren't times when we need to rely on the body of Christ for help, even financially. Right? And it is certainly not wrong to help those in need, even when that need is a result of poor decisions. Right? Like That's the very message of the gospel, that God helps us in our foolishness and folly and rebellion. Right? But if turning into a financial drain on the body of Christ is the result of laziness, a refusal to plan ahead, or a life of just careless indulgence that leaves nothing left over for the future, that's not only unhealthy, that is dishonoring to God and serves to discredit the transforming power of the gospel to a watching world. It just shows that we're just like, we just 
We just don't care about the future. And so prudent saving and investing, it marks the life of a godly steward as they prepare for known and unknown events as life, as they try to be people who can contribute to the kingdom and the family of God, not just be dependent drains. But there's one more reason the Bible encourages us to save. And it's, it's, it's found in Proverbs 13. It's, it's simply this, that one of the reasons we're encouraged to save is so that we might be able to be a blessing to others. In Proverbs 13, verse 22, the writer says this, A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Now, Hannah and I have not been like the personal recipients of like an official inheritance by some imagination or some stretch, but I can say with a lot of certainty that the wise saving of our parents and grandparents has been a huge blessing to us financially over the years. I told you last week about my, my grandpa who gave me the first car loan I ever had so I could get a car and go to the very first job, that uh, real job that I had. Our grandparents as well have also given generously to the various ministries that God's called Hannah and I to give our lives and attention to over the years. And they've done that in their fixed income retirement years. And they were able to do that because they had saved wisely. Additionally, in the early years of our marriage, I remember Hannah and I were just so broke. Uh, our first budget, like the first year we were married, our first budget was like $1,000 a month. And even in 2009, that's not a lot, right? Like that, that did not go that far. And I remember of the courses of Christmases and birthdays and anniversaries, parents, our parents were, had just given us really generous gifts that helped us to do things like save up for a new car that we otherwise couldn't have afforded, or start to save for a down payment on a home. And I could go on for a while, but the point is this, the wise saving and investing of our parents and grandparents has really been a huge blessing to us. And we just like wouldn't be in the spot that we're at now without them. And so saving is one of the ways that you can bless people, the people in your family. But saving, but while saving is often commended in the Bible as prudent and wise for all the reasons that we have talked about, the Bible also condemns saving and investing for the wrong reasons. And there's a million bad reasons to save and invest money. I just want to highlight three of them for you this morning. Three, three reasons, three motivations for saving that are at odds with thinking and acting like a godly steward. And the first is simply this. Sometimes we tend to, to save or invest money in an effort to escape fear and anxiety through self-sufficiency. Right? We, we want to be safe and secure. We want to be free from worry. And we think it's just better or at least easier to rely on ourselves rather than to rely on God. And so we save in order to control all the variables in our lives so we can find security in the things that we can grasp, things we can hold on to rather than in God. And that's the exact kind of thinking that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul encourages Timothy to warn people about. He says it this way, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, Hannah will tell you, uh, my wife will tell you, that this is, this is her area of struggle. If my temptation is to use money to feed my comfort idol and just to distract myself from the world and things, then hers is to use money to serve a control idol. We just transitioned uh, apps that we used to kind of track our budget, and part of that was like transferring over our uh, like spending account, like your birthday money or whatever, you know, money that we can kind of spend on whatever we want to. Uh, that was real easy for me. Uh, my number was zero, right? It was real easy to transfer over. I didn't have anything left in there, right? Hannah's, Hannah's personal spending 
spending money, that was not zero, right? That was not a zero. And that's, that's the way it's been our whole marriage, right? I remember uh, early on, Hannah got some, like we had both gotten some money for birthday or Christmas or something. In a month, mine had been spent. It's like a year later, and I'm like, Hannah, what are you going to do with this money? And she's like, I, I don't know. Why is this here? I was like, I just, she just, I just like having it in there. I'm like, I don't understand any of that. Like, that makes absolutely no sense to me, right? And while there is certainly nothing wrong with not spending your birthday money right away, right? The reality is that if Hannah's not watching her heart, she knows that she's going to be tempted to find her sense of security in the balance of our bank accounts or how much we're putting into retirement every month. And she knows that about her heart, and so she needs to be so she's careful about that. The problem is that with this the problem with this motivation, right, to try to escape fear and uncertainty through self-sufficiency, is there's there's at least two problems with that, right? Number one, the writer of Proverbs notes, wealth is so uncertain. Right? In 23, verse 5, Proverbs says this: cast but a glance at riches and they're gone. They'll sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Right? Putting your hope in wealth is dumb. Every market crash, every system, like all the ways, it can be gone in an instant. It's like building your house on sand. You're just waiting for the shore to take it away. But secondly, realize that putting your hope in, in your wealth and in your savings, it doesn't actually alleviate the fear and anxiety and worry. It doesn't actually solve the problem, right? The richest man in the history of the world, King Solomon, he writes this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12. He says, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or eat much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. In other words, he's saying, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. Right? He goes on in verse 13 and 14 to add, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. A wealth lost through some misfortune. Right? He says, hoarding wealth for yourself, that's not just selfish. It's harmful for you. Because what it, the reality is that the more you have, the more you have to worry about losing. See, saving as an act of prudence and wise stewardship is good and healthy. But saving as an, as an attempt to escape anxiety and fear for what the future might hold, that's not only foolish, that's a rejection of the kind of dependence that God calls us to have on him. We want to live as though we don't need anybody else. And God says, that is not how I have designed you. Right? We aren't self-reliant owners. God calls us to act and live as dependent stewards. And so fear, avoiding fear through self-sufficiency, those are, that's a bad reason to save. But the second is also this. There's another one, the, just the desire to live the good life. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable about a, a rich man who has this bumper crop that's so big, he, he doesn't have a place to store all of, its, all, of his, all of the harvest. And so he decides to tear down his old barns, build new ones. And you're like, well, I mean, that seems wise, right? It seems good to do that. But then in verse 19, we see what his motivations are. He says, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat and drink and be merry. The parable ends with God telling this, telling this man, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. See, what makes this man foolish is not his attempt to plan for the future. It's the way that his plans for the future revolve around only himself. They're self-absorbed, self-focused, self-centered plans. 
Commenting on these verses, Jamie Munson, he poignantly writes this. He says, God has no tolerance for our efforts to create our own personal heaven on earth in the form of physical comforts and financial security and luxurious pleasures. There is a dangerous difference between enjoying God's gifts in worship to him and worshiping gifts to enjoy ourselves. I think passages like Luke 12, right, they help us to think wisely about the idea of retirement. Right? Retirement, as we often think about today, is just like you're finally free to do whatever you want. Right? You saved up for a long time, you sacrificed for a long time, now you just you have the freedom to do and to spend whatever you want on. Right? It's about travel and sleep and golf and just indulging. But the reality is that that's not an idea you find anywhere in the Bible. Not only does that not satisfy, that's the very essence of an ownership mentality. That all we have is just for us. See, that being said, the principle of faithfully saving over the course of a lifetime so you can reach a point where you can quit your day job, that's not a bad thing, right? Like, that's not, that's not evil. There's nothing wrong with that. So long as our goals post-career are spent living for Jesus, not just indulging in our own comforts and pleasures, and we use that time to serve others and to use our gifts and to invest in people. When I think about what that looks like, I think most clearly of a friend of mine who passed away just a few years ago, a guy named Dick Wadowitz. Dick was a retired teacher and coach at UW-Platteville. During his career, he helped start InterVarsity, which is a campus ministry that I was a part of during my time there as a student and later on on staff with. When Dick retired from his job as a coach at the university, he saw that as an opportunity to shift the balance of the work that he was doing. And was able to focus even more time on the things that he knew mattered most, which were people knowing and loving and growing up in their relationship with Jesus. And in his retirement, Dick spent countless hours meeting up with teachers and coaches and students, people he had built relationships with over a career of coaching and leading. And as you might expect, Dick's finances followed his heart. He and his wife Marion gave incredibly generously to the kingdom work happening on campus and to what God was doing in their city. And Dick hadn't saved so that he could live the good life. You see, Dick knew that the good life was found in knowing and serving Jesus and in helping others to do the same. And the way that he spent his time and his money in retirement, it showed that that's really what drove the way he saw it. That was really his motivations. See, the way that we think about those things needs to shift in light of our calling and our identity. But before we move on, I just want to add just, just one, one last note here. I think one of the things that I've seen increasingly over the years when it comes to the way people save their money, especially when it comes to retirement, is there's like this ever-increasing trend of people who are just like desperately trying to retire in their 40s. Right? And they're like willing to work endless 80-hour weeks right? and just save, live as minimally as possible so they can make that happen, even though it's like this huge financial cost to their families or their health or their, or their marriages. And there's endless podcasts out there that will just tell you like, hey, all of that's worth it. Just grind and work really hard. And just like, if you do it, if you want it enough, you can retire early and live the good life. But the warning of Proverbs chapter 23 rings out. It says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust in your own cleverness. Listen, here's the reality, church. God's ways are higher than yours. And he's certainly higher than the random podcaster on the internet. 
Work is not a curse. It is a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And early retirement is not the salvation and answer you are looking for. Faithfulness to Jesus and his kingdom work is where you're going to find the life that you are looking for. See, here's the good news. Jesus doesn't offer you freedom from work one day. See, he offers you freedom in your work now. The kind of freedom that comes from understanding your identity and calling and purpose isn't your career, but that your career is an avenue which you get to live those things out for his glory and good. See, escaping fear through self-sufficiency, trying to be able to live the good life in the end or just as quickly as possible, both of those are terrible motivations for saving. But there's one last bad motivation I want to highlight for you this morning, and it's simply this. It's the desire to get rich quick. Right? It, it's one thing to intentionally save a portion of your income over time. It's another to try to just put as much of your income as possible into schemes that are aimed at shortcutting a life of dependent stewardship. Right? Proverbs 13 verse 11 says it this way, dishonest money dwindles away, but over gathers money little by little makes it grow. Chapter 28 verse 20 adds this, a faithful person will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. Listen, get rich quick schemes are as old as time. Right? Everyone is fine. Like, it's nothing new to try to find a shortcut for that. Right? There's always enticing investment opportunities with the promise of exceptionally high returns in short periods of time, and they all have at least two things in common. Number one, they only work for a minute fraction of people, usually the ones promoting them. Right? And two, the goal is always to get around a life of consistent faithfulness over the long haul. Skip the work. Skip the patience. Just get the rewards now. And the reality is that not only do these schemes not work, even if they did, it wouldn't be good for your soul. Even if they did, it wouldn't be good for you. right? Because that's not the way that God has designed you. That's not who he is. See, God is never looking for shortcuts. He is not characterized by looking for the easy way out or the easy way around. See, what characterizes God is that he's characterized by faithfulness and perseverance in the midst of hard things over the long haul with people. And so that's what should characterize us as well. And so listen, right? If your crypto bro friend tells you that some newly minted crypto coin is like going to the moon, right? And that if you want to get on the gravy train, you got to invest all your resources in that, right? Then the, the answer to that is run, right? Not because cryptocurrency is like the devil's wallet or something like that, right? <laughs> but because get rich quick schemes are always a trap. Get rich quick schemes are always a trap. They never help you become more like Jesus. They only draw you away from a life spent depending on him and faithfully stewarding the resources he's entrusted to you. There isn't shortcuts. It's not how it works. And so saving and investing for the future is clearly wise and good according to God's word. And doing so for the wrong reasons is clearly problematic and dangerous. So the question that we're left with is, how do you learn to do it the right way? How do we save, how do we invest with the perspective of a dependent steward? Well, as we wrap up this morning, I just want to highlight for you three simple things. Number one, start somewhere. 
Start somewhere. Just like giving generously and budgeting wisely, you have to begin by beginning. And so like I mentioned earlier, maybe that looks like being intentional about starting with saving an emergency account or just beginning by taking advantage of your employer's 401k match if you, if you have that, right? Even if it's small, just start somewhere. Part of what saving is doing is helping us to like free ourselves from like the urgency of the, like the tyranny of the urgent. I have to have this. I need this. I need it now. And saving and investing, and part of what we're doing is we're saying, I actually don't need it now. I actually don't. And I'm loosening the grip that, that things have on my life by choosing to delay some of those things. So one, start somewhere. Number two, ask for help. Right? Seek out a financial advisor. I mentioned our fellow pastor and and former financial advisor Dave Clark over at Hope last week, I'd encourage you, if you, want to, if you want help taking some next steps with thinking about saving and investing as a godly steward, reach out to Dave. I can put you in touch with him. He'd be happy to help you think through some next steps with that. But more than just asking someone for practical financial advising help, I'd encourage you to ask for heart-level help. Ask for heart-level help from friends and leaders you trust that you know love Jesus. Invite them to ask you the kind of heart-level questions that will help you discern, not just if you're saving or if you're not, but if you're doing it with the right motivations or not. Right, You've got you to invite people to speak into that. We don't, nobody likes talking about money themselves, let alone asking others about it. And so we need to start with that practice of inviting others to speak into our lives. Right? Not everyone, but who are those who, who are wise, who know, who know the Lord, that you can ask to help speak into your heart, to help you discern if you're saving as a self-reliant owner or if you're doing so as a dependent steward. And that brings us to the last and most important thing we can do if we want to be characterized by thinking and living with the perspective of a dependent steward. And it's simply this, that we need to keep remembering the gospel. See, to one degree or another, all of us are tempted to look to money to be our source of provision and protection and our greatest joy. And that leads us all to think and act like self-reliant owners. And the reality is that the only way that we're going to start to live with the perspective of a dependent steward is when we start looking to God to be those things for us. See, when we start looking to Him to be our provider and Him to be our protector and Him to be our source of joy... And what we see in the gospel is that the gospel is the ultimate proof that he is all those things for us. Right? The gospel proves that God is our ultimate provider. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes it this way, If he didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In Luke 12, Jesus repeatedly tells his disciples not to worry about money. He tells them the reason is because God's a good father who knows what they need. He says it this way in verse 29 through 32. Don't set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these will be given to you as well. I love how he ends in verse 32. I just can't, I implore you, just listen carefully. He says, do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. See, the God that we worship is not a stingy, just barely enough provider. You're not trying to have to like pull stuff out of his hands. 
He is a good father who loves to bless, who is generous, and he is pleased to give generously towards you. When you look to him to be your good provider, you'll be able to save and invest, not so that you know you'll always have more than enough, but because you know that Jesus is already enough, no matter what you have. But the gospel also proves that God's not just our ultimate provider, but that he is our ultimate protector. He doesn't just rescue us from our financial problems. He rescues us from our eternal, spiritual, our greater problems, Satan and sin and death. And if he was willing to go through the cross to protect you from those things, then you can be sure, like there is no situation you're going to get yourself into now that he's going to like leave you hanging in. If he was willing to go to the cross to rescue you from the greater things, he's not going to walk away from you in any other situation. When you look to him to be your protector, you'll be able to save and invest not in an attempt to find security in the midst of chaos and uncertainty, but out of the security of knowing that no matter what happens, he will be with you even if your money isn't. What will happen is that the bumps in the stock market and the bumps in your budget, they start to smooth out in your heart because the security that you have isn't found in your numbers, but it's found in the Lord. Lastly, we see that the gospel proves that God is our ultimate joy. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon, he writes this, he says, whoever loves money will never have enough. Whoever loves wealth will never be satisfied with their income. And yet Jesus tells us in John 10 that he's come so that we might have life to the full. And he tells the woman at the well in John 4 that whoever drinks the water he offers won't ever thirst again. See, we're looking for life. We're looking for joy in all the places that money can never actually give it to you. And when you see that knowing and serving Jesus is really the way to a life that is full and full of joy, then you will be able to save and to invest, not so that you can live the good life one day, but so that you might join God in the work of helping others to know the good life now through relationship with him. See, the gospel shows us that God, it's like the ultimate proof that God is our ultimate provider and protector and source of joy. And so every week when we take communion, that's what we're remembering and celebrating. We're reminding ourselves that he's our protector, that he's our provider, that he is our source of joy. And then on the cross, he proves and secures those things for us because he received the penalty that our self-reliant ownership of towards money deserves so that you and I might receive the gracious reward of being his beloved children and being given the gracious calling and command and commendation of being dependent stewards. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't change the way God sees you or looks at you. Instead, it's a chance for you to remember him and to remind yourselves of all that he has done for you, that he is your great protector your ultimate provider, and the source of joy you are longing for. So as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, if you put your faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you during our time of worship, go back. Let the bread and the juice be a reminder of his broken body and shed blood, 
which is the ultimate proof that he's your provider and protector and the real source of joy. But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and you're realizing that you do not look to him to be your provider or protector or source of joy, then I want to encourage you, you are welcome here, but hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that says, you are the thing I need. You are the treasure. God, you are my protector. You're my provider. You are the joy I'm after. And so as we sing, as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God. Some of you are here and you have spent your whole life depending and relying on yourself. And you've done that both financially and spiritually. And the invitation this morning is that you might instead turn from relying on yourself to turn to relying on Jesus, to look to him to be your provider and protector and great joy. Others of you are here, and you know that Jesus is those things. You've trusted him to be those things for you, but you find yourself continually tempted to keep looking to money to be them. Right? And instead of looking to Jesus to be your provider, you keep looking to your bank account and your income and your paycheck. Instead of looking to him to be your protector, you look at your savings account and your 401k and you see if you have enough to, uh, to survive catastrophes. Instead of looking to him to be your greatest joy, you see your money as the path to the good life. And the invitation is that you might talk with God about those realities that you might just be honest with him. He's not surprised. He knows that all our hearts are tempted towards using money for those things. And he wants to help set you free from those things. And so ask him that he might give you eyes to see where you're looking to something other than him to be your provider and protector and joy. And ask him to remind you about the gospel which proves that he is the thing you're after. Lastly for all of us, I just want to encourage you with this. What are the practical next steps that God is giving you, he's inviting you to take as you think about being a steward who uses money to deepen your love for him instead of divert it away from him? What next step is he calling you to take? Do you need to start taking steps to grow as a generous steward? Do you need to start taking steps to grow as a wise steward? Do you need to start taking steps to grow as a dependent steward? Where is God calling you to take a next step? It's like it's not enough for it to just be here and to know some principles. God wants to transform your life as he changes your heart. Ask him where he's calling you to do that and ask him to empower you to join him in it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you. And we are thankful, God, that even though we tend to live our lives as selfish, foolish, self-reliant owners, that you are the ultimate good steward who has loved us well. And we pray that you would empower us, Lord Jesus. That you'd enable us to be generous stewards, wise stewards, dependent stewards, who realize that all we have is from you, and who live in light of those truths, full of joy, for the good of others, and for your glory, we pray. Amen.